Well, hello, ABC College. Hope you guys are doing well on this Wednesday. Uh, it's hard to believe that we've reached the last week of our theology study this summer. Uh, we've been going at this for like 13 weeks. It's hard to believe it's been that long, uh, but I hope this has been beneficial for you. Uh, if you're a Christian, I hope this has been helpful maybe to just move past some surface level things we say in the church and maybe encourage you in some depth and maybe even encourage you to do some more studying of your own on these things. But also, if you're not a Christian, I hope that this has maybe helped you take even one more step toward Jesus and maybe answer some questions you've had. And uh, that's a privilege if that's been the case. Um, so thank you for tuning in to this. But these videos are going to be online for uh, hopefully a long time. So feel free to go back and reference any of the weeks that we've done on any of the topics, uh, whatever is helpful uh, for you. Uh, but this week, we're going to wrap up uh, by talking about really kind of two things, talking about what happens when we die and when will, will the world end or what will the end times be like. That sometimes gets called eschatology, study of the end times. So we're going to talk about those two uh, things tonight. And I know that's a pretty heavy topic or heavy topics, and we could spend, honestly, hours talking about this stuff. But I, I think I've boiled it down to some helpful things without it being too vague in general. Um, but if you have more questions, feel free to use that number we've been using. Feel free to email us um, at the church um, or contact us whatever way through social media, and we'd love to dialogue more about this. But um, we have a lot of work to do, so let's go ahead and, and get into this uh, tonight. So the first question we're going to talk about tonight is uh, what happens when we die? It's the question that humans have asked for centuries, right? Or for more for millennium, you know. Uh, but let's look at what the Bible says uh, about what happens um, when we die. First, let's talk about what happens when a believer dies. And I'm talking about like, you know, in this current age, uh, before Christ comes back, you know, what happens when we die? Well, believers would tell us you know, maybe not us, well, the Bible would tell us, uh, maybe not everything that we'd want to know about it, but really it gives us one very truthful statement, is that when believers die, uh, their souls go immediately into God's presence. Two verses to show us this. Uh, one is 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul tells us that uh, he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, showing a contrast that if we're away from the body, it means that we're at home with the Lord, that when we die, our souls leave our body and go to be with the Lord in his presence. Another verse that shows this is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross, the one that believes in him, that asks uh, to be with Jesus after he dies that day. Uh, Jesus replies to that thief in Luke 23, 43, and says this, that you, you know probably what he said, but he says, today you will be with me in paradise, that today you'll be with me. Not in some future time, but today you will be with me. So while the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details of exactly what that paradise is like right now, it does tell us that the souls of all believers who die go immediately into God's presence. But that kind of teaches two things that aren't true. Uh, first, this means that the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of purgatory. Um, purgatory is a, a Catholic doctrine that says that when Christians die, they go to a place called purgatory where they're purified from their remaining sins until they get to enter heaven. Uh, the Bible honestly just doesn't teach that. The only place it even is supported is in the Apocrypha, which if you remember the video we did back talking about the Bible, 
we can't trust the Apocrypha to be authoritative for our faith. So the doctrine of purgatory isn't in the Bible. It's not something that we honestly should believe in. Uh, but also, this idea means that the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of what sometimes gets called soul sleep. Soul sleep is the belief that when a believer dies, that they go into a state of unconsciousness. And the next thing they're aware of is the return of Christ, you know, where he raises them uh, to eternal life in their resurrected bodies. And the Bible just doesn't teach that. And, you know, yes, the Bible does use the, the word sleep to sometimes talk about death uh, as a metaphor, but that's it. It's simply a metaphor the Bible uses to talk about how uh, death is a temporary thing for Christians. It's not a permanent thing. Uh, you don't want to read too much into that idea of sleep and think that, okay, that means we go unconscious and then we wake up again and Jesus is returning and then we enter into eternity. But instead, the Bible makes it very clear that when Christians die, their soul goes immediately uh, into the presence of God and they are conscious of uh, their presence there with God. But we got to remember, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, that God doesn't leave or he will not leave our dead bodies in the earth forever. That when Christ returns, he's going to return for not just our souls, but he's going to reunite our souls with our bodies. And really, as we'll talk about more in a minute, the souls of all believers will, will return with Christ to be united with their bodies again. And then those bodies, our bodies will be raised from the dead in glorified, resurrected states where we will then begin to live with Christ for all eternity. So death in its current form, you know, where our souls go to be with the Lord, is a temporary thing compared to the, the better thing that's to come for believers. So that's the first bit of what happens when a believer dies. A lot of th things we just don't know, but that's what the Bible does tell us. Uh, but what about unbelievers? Well, the kind of reverse is true, is that the souls of unbelievers go immediately when they die into eternal punishment. And this is a hard thing, um, but what this teaches us is that there is no second chance for unbelievers after they die. Uh, consider the famous story Jesus told in Luke 16, where Jesus tells this story of a rich man named Lazarus that uh, when he died, he wasn't a believer, uh, he went to hell. In Luke 16, 24 through 26, it says this, And he, he being Lazarus, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So one of the main points Jesus seems to be making there is that hell is a permanent thing and hell is a place of punishment. And there's no second chance for those that don't uh, choose to accept Christ in this life. But also we were, want to remember that although unbelievers may enter eternal punishment upon death, their bodies will also be raised uh, and resurrected on the day of final judgment. Their souls will be reunited with their bodies, but they will then stand before God for judgment where they, they will receive even worse eternal punishment in the lake of fire, in eternal hell, however you want to call it. It's a hard thing, but that's what the Bible teaches us about what happens when uh, we die right now. But that's not really the end of the story. Death for us is not the end of the story. The Bible gives us a much bigger ending, and that's where we're going to move into the study tonight of eschatology, of the end times.
So let's first talk about uh, the return of Christ. Uh, it's kind of the central aspect of how the Bible would talk about the end of uh, the world. What does the Bible tell us about the return of Christ? Lots of stuff that we don't have time to get into tonight, but let's kind of boil it down into some, some important things. The first is this, is that there's going to be a sudden, visible, and bodily return of Jesus. You know, this is not something we probably talk about enough uh, in the church, uh, at least in my experience. But in the New Testament, this is honestly the dominant hope that Christians should have. Uh, and we know this is going to be a true thing, that one day Jesus is actually going to physically return uh, for Christians and to initiate eternity. Uh, Acts 1.11 makes this very clear that right after Jesus ascends into heaven, two angels appear and they say, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, that he ascended visibly into heaven. He's going to visibly descend back to the earth. And the New Testament is just full of references to Jesus' eventual return. And his return is going to be sudden, dramatic, and visible. Uh, just consider a few. Revelation 1.7 says, He, he being Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. First Thessalonians 4.16 and 17 says, For the Lord, that being Jesus still, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So we see the true fact that Christ is going to return. He's going to initiate eternity and that Christians will then always be uh, with the Lord. But another fact about the return of Christ is that we don't know when he will return. You know, I, I know 2020 has been pretty bad, uh, and we may think, hey, he's coming back like tomorrow based on how 2020 has been. And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe so, but honestly, I think every generation, uh, really since Jesus was on earth, has probably believed that they were the last generation before, before he returned. Um, so we don't really know when Christ is going to come back again. And really the whole chapter of Mark 13 makes this clear, but Mark 13, 32 and 33 says this, this is Jesus saying this. He says, But of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. So the whole point of that is that as Christians, we don't know when Christ is coming back, so we should always be ready. We should always be staying uh, prepared and awake, as Jesus would say in some of his other stories. We should be staying awake and ready for his uh, return. And that doesn't mean that we kind of give up all of our responsibilities, that we just kind of pray and like steer into the sky all the time waiting for him to come back. No, that means that we should in every way be faithful to what God has called us to do, that we should seek every day to honor Christ in our lives, that we should seek to make the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations the central thing that we're about right now. That's the best way that we stay uh, prepared. And obviously there's lots of disagreements about the details of his return but the fact remains that he will return, and that's supposed to be, honestly, a level of accountability that we have as Christians, is that Jesus could come back any day, and we want to be found faithful. We want to be found at work, not just sitting around waiting for him to come back. Uh, but also, when it comes to Christ's return, it seems that there will be some kind of signs before he uh, comes back. 
And I'm gonna put a graphic on the screen just listing these out because we don't have time to go into all of them. But just look at a couple of these uh, signs and the references to scripture. A lot of them are from Mark 13. But apparently the preaching of the gospel to all the nations will be a sign before Christ returns. Apparently there's gonna be a great tribulation where a lot of suffering and chaos and wickedness will happen on the earth, according to Mark 13. Uh, there'll be false prophets working signs and wonders, also in Mark 13. There's going to be signs in the heavens, the sun being dark and all this kind of stuff, also in Mark 13. Really, you should go read Mark 13 to get all this. Um, also, there's going to be the, the coming of the final Antichrist and a massive rebellion against God, according to 2 Thessalonians. And also, there's going to apparently be some kind of spiritual revival amongst the Jewish people, according to Romans 11. So we see in that that there's all these kind of signs that are going to precede Christ coming back. Coming back. But also, if you look at lots of other verses in the Bible, especially the New Testament, the main focus seems to be that Christ could really come back at any moment. So how do you like fit those two ideas together, that he could come back at any moment, but yet there's going to be signs to where we're going to know he comes back? Um, well, I think the most helpful way to kind of combine those things together is to think that, yes, there are going to be signs that precede the return of Christ, but who are we to know how many of those have already been fulfilled or are even being fulfilled right now and we don't even even know it you know like obviously some of those signs probably haven't happened yet you know the the, the signs in the heavens you know probably haven't happened you know the, the sun's really been darkened and stuff like that in a way that would probably fit that description but if 2020 has taught me anything it's that things can change really quick in the world and we should be ready for whatever you know change may come and being ready to adapt to it. But, you know, the signs in the heavens, like that could happen minutes before Jesus comes back. And so things can change very quickly. So the signs may have already happened. Some may be happening right now and he could maybe come back any moment. The point is that we're not supposed to be always busy, you know, like trying to decipher, well, is he coming back tomorrow? Like, is he coming back next year on this day? The point is that, yes, we should be aware of what's going on in the world, but we should be actively at work in the world making disciples so that we can be prepared and be found faithful when Christ has come back, whenever that is. And also knowing that the world is a crazy place, especially right now. And it's, it's very possible that he could come back in 2020. It's also very possible it could be a long time from now. But whenever that is, we don't know. Let's be found faithful in, in the work of making disciples right now. That's the primary uh, way the Bible compels us to live in light of the return of Christ, in light of eternity. Okay, but one more thing on this before we move on to um, kind of heaven, hell kind of things. There's also one other idea when it comes to the return of Christ and end times. It's this idea of the millennium. I don't mean like the Millennium Falcon kind of stuff for just the year 2000, but uh, it's this idea found in Revelation 20 specifically, which seems to describe a period of a thousand years that happens somewhere around the return of Christ. I want to read these verses for you because it gives you some helpful insight. It's, it's six verses from Revelation 20, Revelation 20, 1 through 6. It says this, Then I saw, I being John, who's writing this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So based on these verses, what's happened is this, is that there have been three major views that have developed about the millennium and how eternity might begin. So we sometimes joke around about we get out our charts when we start talking about eschatology and the end times. But we're going to get out the charts for a second because I think they are helpful to just see the different views. So let me put up this first one. There's three views. This first chart you're looking at now is a chart that talks about amillennialism. And what amillennialism believes is that the millennium is actually more of an allegory. There's no actual future thousand years. It's more symbolic. And if you look at the chart, it says that the millennium, Revelation 21 through 6, is actually happening right now in the church age, the period after Christ ascended before he comes back. And you see this kind of seat-looking thing. Well, amillennialism would say that at some point in the future, um, with no other stuff really happening, besides maybe some signs happening, that Christ is going to come back. There's going to be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers, that Christ is going to judge everyone, and then he's going to initiate the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal state will, will begin. It's probably the simplest view, but it just thinks that the millennium talked about in the Bible is simply symbolic. That's amillennialism. Second one is postmillennialism. These are some $5 words tonight, but postmillennialism. This one would believe that Christ comes back after the millennium, that the church age is going to lead into a millennium, and postmillennialism would probably say that things are going to get progressively better in the world over time to where we enter into a time of peace, because the millennium is described as a time of, of peace and prosperity uh, where Christ is reigning more in some capacity. They would say that we're going to move into that time and get progressively better until then Christ yet comes again and then he judges Every, everyone, believers and unbelievers, and we enter into new heaven, new earth, eternal state. Uh, not as popular of a view these days because things definitely don't seem to be getting better. But that's what postmillennialism would say. Then here is, uh, there's actually two views in premillennialism. There's classical and there is uh, pre-tribulational. So the first one you're looking at now is classical premillennialism. It would say that Christ comes before the millennium, that we have the church age there on the left, you see, and that T represents the tribulation, this great time of suffering and wickedness in the world that will happen at the end of the church age. At the end of the tribulation, after the tribulation, Christ is going to come uh, again. And in that moment, and you had to look at this chart and figure it out, but in that moment, as Christ comes again, believers are going to be caught up with Christ in the air, and they're going to immediately come back down with him to the earth where they then reign with Christ in the new millennium. And that in this renewed earth, um, in some way, maybe not completely renewed, uh, but in this new earth, this millennial time, there's going to be peace. Christ is going to reign with believers on the earth. And at the end of the millennium, maybe a thousand years, maybe a different amount of time represented by a thousand years, 
But at the end of the millennium, there is going to be the great judgment where then the unbelievers will be resurrected. There will be judgment and then there will be uh, eternity will begin. You also see that little asterisk there that classical premillennialists also differ on whether the earth will be renewed uh, before or after um, you know, the great judgment, things like that. So that's the first kind of pre-millennialism. The second one is this, and this is a mouthful. It is pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. This one would say Christ comes before the millennium and before the tribulation. It says the church age happens, that Christ um, comes again, but there's a difference here in that the tribulation uh, happens after believers are taken away. They're caught up with Christ. Uh, they usually would say in this view, they're taken away to heaven as it is right now. And then there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation, of, of awful time on the earth. And then Christ is going to come again with, with the believers. And then he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years um, in this time of peace. Then at the end of that millennium, there'll be the resurrection of the unbelievers, judgment, new heaven, new earth, go from there. Okay? All right. So I, I know that was a lot there. And by the way, all those charts are from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. Um, they're just kind of helpful visuals. Uh, but you see there lots of views. I'm, I'm not going to argue for any of those views uh, right now. We don't have time to go through the the, the, um, the arguments for and the arguments uh, against. Uh, I have my own personal beliefs, and I've actually changed my mind multiple times on this stuff, and that's okay because this is like a lot, a lot of opinions on this. But the one kind of key thing I want to point out there is even in those last two views, the pre-millennialism view, notice how there's a kind of a pre-tribulation and a post-tribulation return of Christ deal there. And this also gets called like pre-trib or post-trib. Are you pre-trib or are you post-trib with the return uh, of Christ? You know, some say Christians will be, you know, raptured or, or taken up to heaven uh, before the tribulation. And then the seven years will pass and then Christ will return uh, to judge um, the world and the millennium happens in the great judgment and eternity. Some say he's going to come back after the tribulation. So is it a pre-trib, post-trib return of Christ? Well, we don't have time to get into all of that, but I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I would make the argument that the idea of some kind of secret rapture and then a separate return of Christ later on after the tribulation and after a rapture I would say that's not honestly supported very well in the Bible. I'd say most support for that comes more from like left behind books than it comes from the Bible. I'm not saying they're completely wrong in those things, but I don't see a lot of real biblical support for the idea of a secret rapture and then like two kind of separate comings of Christ. He comes once to kind of secretly take away the Christians, then he comes again, you know, to like start the millennium. I don't really see that in uh, the Bible, but you do your own studying and determine what you believe. Um, I just want to present the major views on this, and you can take and do with it what you want. Okay? So that is you know, the end times, the return of Christ in the millennium. All right, so now let's talk about uh, the final uh, judgment and eternal punishment. All right, so first off, when is the final judgment going to happen? Well, the final judgment is going to happen after the millennium, however, however you define the millennium and is it real? Is it symbolic? You know, but after the millennium, the final judgment will happen. And the, it also happened after the rebellion against God. Um, and at that time of rebellion, God's going to completely defeat sin. He's going to completely defeat Satan. Actually, he's already completely defeated sin, really. But he's going to completely defeat Satan once and for all. And every person 
in the whole world who has ever lived will then stand before Christ for judgment. Uh, Revelation 20, 11 would tell us that Christ is going to sit on a white throne in judgment. And every person, the whole world, every person who has ever lived will stand before Christ in judgment. Now the question is, what's going to happen at that judgment? Well, a few things. First off, like we mentioned, Jesus Christ is going to be the judge. But also, unbelievers are going to be judged. That every person who ever lived, they're going to be judged. And those who didn't put their faith in Christ are going to be judged based on their, their works, their behavior on this earth. Uh, there's going to be degrees of punishment even based on people's behavior. Because Revelation 20, if you look at it, it says that people will be judged by what they have done. Uh, and that lines up even with what Jesus said uh, in, in his time on earth. He said it for sometimes talking to people. He said, yeah, it's going to be more toler- tolerable for other people on the day of judgment than it is going to be for you because of the way that you've rejected me and the way that you've treated me. So there's apparently some even degree of judgment that people will receive. I don't pretend to understand all of what that is, but it is there. It's in the Bible. And on that day, uh, the secrets of people's hearts are going to be revealed. Uh, they're going to be exposed before God. Before uh, They're going to be exposed before God for who they truly are, which is a honestly absolutely terrifying thing if you don't have the blood of Christ being offered up as a sacrifice for your sins, for the wickedness of your heart. It's a scary, scary thing, but that's the truth of, of what is to come for unbelievers. That's why we share the gospel with people. Uh, but for believers, believers are also going to be judged at uh, this great white throne judgment. Uh, Romans 14.10 tells Christians that we, we being Christians, shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. But before you get too scared as a Christian, remember this judgment is not for condemnation, but really it's for reward. Hebrews 8.12 literally says that God will not remember our sins anymore if we're in Christ. And so this judgment that we're going to receive is not going to be God bringing up our sins again for us to feel bad about them. But instead, this judgment that we're going to receive is going to be based on uh, how faithful we've been to Christ in the world and the reward that we're going to receive because of that faithfulness. God's not going to stand up there and pull out a list of our sins again and read them out and make us feel bad, but then be like, all right, well, even though you do all this kind of stuff, I'll let you into heaven based on what Christ did. No, this judgment is going to be really based on more how faithful we've been living for Christ since we've become a Christian. It's going to be more of a reward. Uh, Unbelievers are going to be judged like they're in a courtroom. They're going to be judged based on being guilty for their their sins. But believers are going to be judged as if they're standing on like the podium at the Olympics. Okay, it's going to be more of a idea of rewards that you receive and being judged in that way. Not like a courtroom. It's the Olympics, not a courtroom. The courtroom is for unbelievers. And here's the thing, though, that that idea of reward bothers us sometimes. But the thing we got to remember is that those who get less reward in eternity, it doesn't mean they're going to be less happy in heaven because our, our happiness in eternity is not going to be based on the reward we receive, the position we have or whatever in heaven. Our happiness in eternity is going to come from being with the Lord, that we all are going to be immeasurably joyful, happy, satisfied being with the Lord. And the position we have, you know, isn't going to change that at all. But 
the Bible would teach us that there is some element of reward that leads to maybe what position we have in the new heaven, in new earth. And that all comes from our behavior on earth and how faithful we are to Christ right now. I don't pretend to know everything about that, but that's what the Bible teaches. I think it's important to know it's even motivation for us to serve faithfully in the world. But also at this judgment, uh, angels are also going to be judged according to 1 Corinthians 6. And, and lastly, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 would also even teach us that Christians are going to be involved in the work of judgment in, in some way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, I don't know all what that means, but it seems that Christians will play in some way a role in judging angels and judging uh, the world. So just remember that. All right, so that's kind of judgment. Now let's move into uh, what we would call hell and heaven, the, the eternal state as we begin to wrap this stuff up. All right, let's begin uh, with the, the negative. Let's, let's begin with uh, hell. For unbelievers, after they are judged, they will spend all eternity in hell. And hell is a place of uh, eternal conscious punishment for, for the wicked, for sinners. And the Bible uses uh, multiple pictures throughout it to describe hell. Uh, it describes it as like a lake of fire, like in Revelation. It describes it in Isaiah as a place where their worm does not die, a place of just decay, you know, like worms eating decaying things. Like it's a place where decay just happens perpetually for, uh, for forever. It's described in Isaiah as a place of unquenchable fire. It's described as a place of eternal destruction. It's described as a horrible place. I'll just read you one scripture here. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark uh, of its name. It's a horrible picture. But we see first off that the that hell is not a place where God is not. Some people have said, you know, hell is just the, the absence of the presence of God. Not according to Revelation 14, that God is, is there, his presence is in hell, but his presence is not there to bless. His presence is there to, to punish, to pour out uh, his wrath. We also see that it makes it clear here the Bible says that the hell is unending. Uh, that people who are in hell, they are punished there. And they're conscious of their torment. They experience this consciously uh, forever. And that hell is a place where God is the one pouring out his wrath on sinners. I, I get hell is incredibly hard to think about. If it doesn't bother you deeply, you haven't thought about it honestly very much and very realistically. Um, and I get it's hard to think about, but really the reality of hell should point us to a couple of things. It points us to the seriousness of sin, that God would punish people forever because of it. It also points us to the power of the gospel, that it is the only way to be saved from hell. And therefore, as Christians, the, um, the absolute necessity that we have or the job we have in sharing the gospel with people is the only way we can be saved from the wrath of God. If you want to study this more, I, I encourage you to read um, a great little book called Erasing Hell 
by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. It's a great little book about hell. Um, well, if, if any book about hell can be great, you know, but it's very well done, uh, very informative. I encourage you to read that if you want to go st- um, deeper in this study. Uh, so that's hell. As I'll talk about heaven, uh, or specifically even the new heavens and new earth. Because currently, right now, while God is absolutely everywhere, uh, God also manifests his presence uh, specifically in certain places. This is hard to wrap your head around, but it's true. And right now, heaven is currently the place where God most greatly manifests his presence to bless. Uh, It's where he makes his glory known, where the saints that have already died and where angels worship him. That's heaven right now. God is most uh, presently manifesting his presence to bless in heaven. And that heaven is an actual location right now, not just a state of mind. It's a place that the souls of believers go right now when they die. But the good news of the Bible, the ultimate Christian hope, is not that heaven is some kind of place that we just fly away to uh, when we die and we play harps for all eternity. But instead, the good news of the Bible is that one day heaven and earth are going to be reunited, that heaven is going to come down to earth and heaven and earth will be one in the same, that the earth will be renewed, that it'll be restored, and that, and that there will be the new heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the phrase that the Bible would use to talk about the eternal place where God dwells with his people. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's the new creation. And Christians will live in this renewed creation with God for all of eternity. In our our resurrected bodies, we will physically live in this renewed creation. That when Christ returns, he's going to resurrect us. He's going to take even what's left of our physical bodies, resurrect them and glorify them like we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, And really, we're going to have glorified bodies that are even similar to the glorified and resurrected body of Jesus. But we're going to live in these physical, uh, physically resurrected bodies with God forever. And we're going to reign with him in a renewed creation forever. It's not just an eternal worship service. It's not that it's a bad thing, but it's so much more uh, than just that. And and the Bible is full of descriptions of of life in uh, the new heaven and new earth. And if you read them, you find that some of them sound even similar to the way we experience life uh, right now. Consider Revelation 19 says that we will eat and drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation 22 says that there will be a river of the water of life that's going to flow from the throne of God. It's going to flow through the middle of the streets of a city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. There's going to be cities or a city in the new heaven, new earth. There's going to be at least one tree with fruit, the tree, uh, the, the tree of, the, of life that's going to have fruit, according to Revelation 22.2. And there's no reason to think that these are just simply symbols. But really, they describe probably just a few of the physical aspects that will be a part of the renewed creation that we'll live with, with God. There's no reason to think it's just a, a word picture, but there's every reason to think these are actual physical things that will be in the new heaven, new earth. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that in the new creation, we're going to eat and drink, uh, that we're going to enjoy music, that we're going to have you know jobs and roles to play in the new creation, that we'll in some way get to express the creative potential that we have as image bearers of God, and that we've been given dominion over this new creation. We'll get to exercise that dominion through all kinds of ways of inventing stuff and, and, and working on new technologies and, and who knows what else. 
And that may sound weird to you, but I mean, it all makes sense when you consider how the Bible begins. If the Bible begins with the first humans, Adam and Eve, being given dominion over all creation to fill the earth and to subdue it, right? That was the original plan God made. And God didn't just give up on that plan when sin entered the world. But instead, the story of the Bible is that God is fixing the world, he's defeating sin, and he's bringing us back to Eden. But really, it's more than the perfection of Eden. It's way better. It's way, way better. And that's a beautiful picture. And that's the way that the Bible really kind of ends the story, is that we'll be there with God forever in the new heaven and new earth, forever with them in his, uh, in his presence completely. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. That's the Christian hope. It's more than angels and clouds in the sky. It's being in every new creation with Christ in his presence forever. And I want to end tonight just reading uh, one short description of that in Revelation uh, 21, uh, verses 1 through 5. It says this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea just representing chaos and evil, not necessarily the physical water. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that, that's the Christian hope that Jesus, even right now, is in the process of making all things new, and he will do that. He will make all things new in the restored and renewed new heaven, new earth, where all believers will dwell with him forever. That's our hope. And that's all we have uh, for this study. I hope you have enjoyed this. Um, if you have any questions, uh, we're probably not going to do any more of the texting to that number, uh, but feel free to engage with us on social media. Uh, you can even send an email. My email is kyle at albertabaptist.org. I'd love to uh, respond to your questions. Um, but I hope this has been helpful, been a great resource for you. And for our college students, uh, we're looking forward to having you guys back in just a couple of weeks. We'll be sending out some information soon about fall kickoff plans and things like that. Uh, but for now, this has been great. You guys have a good one. We'll see you around.